Arise. The Honorables, the presiding judge and judges of the Court of Appeals of the State of North Carolina. Oh yes, oh yes, oh yes. The Court of Appeals is now in session. God save the state and this honorable court. Be seated. Good morning, welcome to your North Carolina Court of Appeals. My name is Judge Chris Dillon. I'll be uh, presiding today. To my right is Judge Jeff Carpenter. To my left is Judge April Wood. We have one case on the calendar. It's the case of Mitchell versus Orange County. And if the appellants are ready, proceed. Just let me know how much time you want to reserve for, for rebuttal. And I'll keep your time up here and I'll give you warnings. I mean, I know that light can get distracting, but I'll, 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 I'll let you know. Thank you, Your Honor. Um, uh, may it please the court. Uh, my name is Michelle Ligori from Ellison Winters for the plaintiff's appellants. And I'd like to reserve eight minutes this morning for a rebuttal. Uh, this court and the North Carolina Supreme Court have held that nearby property owners have standing to challenge the validity of a zoning ordinance in a declaratory judgment action if their properties are in the area affected by the ordinance. This case involves the rezoning of a 12-acre parcel in Orange County from a rural residential district to an industrial district. The trial court held that the appellants, 16 nearby property owners, did not have standing to challenge the Orange County's decision to rezone the 12-acre parcel. Orange County decided to rezone the 12 acres in response to a rezoning application by a private developer, Terra Equity. Terra Equity has stated that it plans to build a 300,000 square foot warehouse on the 12 acre parcel. Terra Equity intervened in the case and argued to the trial court that the plaintiff's allegations that rezoning the 12 acres would damage the rural character of their residential community, diminish each of their property values, and expose their properties to increased noise, traffic, and pollution were insufficient to give them standing to challenge the rezoning from which Terra Equity stands to benefit. Uh, to, in, uh, in arguing that the plaintiffs lack standing, Terra Equity relied on cases from the quasi-judicial zoning context and non-precedential cases that misapplied those cases to legislative zoning challenges like the one at issue here. After hearing these arguments, the trial court dismissed the complaint under Rule 12b-1 for lack of standing. Because the trial court's decision is in conflict with this court's and the Supreme Court's precedent, we're asking this court to reverse that decision. I plan to focus my argument on three main points. Uh, the first is a brief discussion of basic standing principles that were set forth in the Supreme Court's recent decision in the committee to elect Dan Forrest's case. The second is to highlight the difference between legislative and quasi-judicial land use decisions. And then the third is to talk about statute, the statutes that show what's necessary for standing to challenge a legislative decision and case law that interprets those statutes. <coughs> so starting with the Dan Forrest case, um, that case sets forth two basic principles for standing that are relevant here. The first is that a plaintiff has standing if a statute gives the plaintiff a cause of action and if the plaintiff meets the requirements for standing under that statute. Uh, no additional requirements, such as an injury in fact, need to be demonstrated to have standing in North Carolina. The second principle from Dan Forrest is that the standing requirement is to ensure concrete adverseness that sharpens the presentation of issues. In other words, the standing requirement exists to ensure that the plaintiffs have a stake in the dispute so that they're well-placed to present the case against the conduct being challenged. Uh, applying those principles here, it's important to, to highlight the distinction between legislative and quasi-judicial land use decisions. Uh, some land use decisions are legislative in character and others are quasi-judicial. Legislative decisions include zoning ordinances and amendments to zoning ordinances, including the conditional use um, amendments to zoning ordinances like the one at issue here. Uh, this is explained in this court's decision in the Carrick case and also in Village Creek. Uh, legislative zoning decisions are made by elected bodies like the Orange County Board of Commissioners and they involve consideration of what's in the public interest. Challenges to legislative decisions assess whether the municipality properly exercised the legislative power that's delegated to them by the General Assembly. Quasi-judicial decisions, on the other hand, include things like the issuance of special use permits and variances. 
These decisions are often made by unelected bodies, like a board of adjustment, and they involve the application of law to fact, like whether the requirements set forth in an ordinance for a special use permit or a variance are met. These quasi-judicial decisions generally do not involve consideration of the public interest. Um, and when a nearby property owner challenges a quasi-judicial decision, it's not challenging the board's exercise of power in the public interest. It's challenging the board's application of law to fact. Uh, so it makes sense that there's a narrower scope of people who can intervene in these types of cases because it's really just challenging whether the applicant met the requirements that are set forth under the statute for a variance or special use permit. Uh, so there are three statutes that are relevant here for showing what's necessary and not necessary for a plaintiff to have standing to challenge zoning ordinance. All three statutes are in, in the statutory appendix to our brief, starting on page 31 of the appendix. Uh, the, the first statute Uh, the first statute relevant here is the Declaratory Judgment Act, which is Section 1-254 of the North Carolina General Statutes. That appears on page 31 of the appendix. It provides that any person whose rights, status, or other legal relations are affected by a municipal ordinance may have determined any question of construction or validity arising under the ordinance and obtain a declaration of rights, status, or other legal relations thereunder. And Section 1-254 appears in Chapter 1, Article 26 of the North Carolina General Statutes. The second statute relevant here is Section 160D-1401, and that appears on page 34 of the appendix. This statute's in the, in the section of the General Statutes that governs land use and in the article titled Judicial Review. Uh, section 1401 provides that legislative zoning decisions may be challenged under Chapter 1, Article 26, which is the Declaratory Judgment Act. And Section 1401 sets forth no additional requirements for standing to bring a declaratory judgment action to challenge a legislative zoning ordinance. This is in sharp contrast to the next statute that appears also on page 34 of the appendix, which is Section 160D-1402. Uh, as shown in subsection A, this statute applies to appeals of quasi-judicial decisions. And section 1401 um, has a provision that limits who has standing to challenge quasi-judicial decisions. Subsection C lists the persons who have standing to challenge these decisions. It includes um, any person who has an ownership, leasehold, or easement interest in the property, and it includes also anyone who will suffer special damages as a result of the decision being appealed. There's also a few other people who have standing which aren't relevant uh, here. So you're saying because this isn't quasi-judicial in nature, this doesn't apply and we should, we should assume that the legislature meant that you don't have to show these things. Because I, I guess the question I have is what rights, because you said 1-254, the, the, the Declaratory Judgment Act, is if your rights have been impacted somehow. So what rights, what rights have been impacted here, I guess, that gives, gives your client standing here? Uh, well, the, this court's uh, and the Supreme Court's cases discuss what, what it means for a person's rights to be affected in the context of a zoning ordinance. Um, and they talk about whether the, the property owners own property in the area nearby and whether their properties are in an area that's affected by the ordinance. And here the allegations um, or the rights that are affected or the, the interests that are affected here include that the rezoning of the property is changing the character of the neighborhood, is diminishing the rural, rural and residential character of the neighborhood. Uh, the plaintiffs, we've also alleged that these, this rezoning is, um, will diminish the value of each property, of each plaintiff's, the value of each plaintiff's property, and that it will interfere with their use and enjoyment of their properties by exposing them to increased noise, pollution, and traffic. Um, and the, uh, the Supreme Court and this court have interpreted um, the, the Declaratory Judgment Act and determined what, what types of property owners or when property owners have standing to challenge a legislative zoning decision. Uh, the Supreme Court's decision in Blades versus City of Raleigh 
tells us that, quote, owners of property in the adjoining area affected by the ordinance meet the requirements for standing under the Declaratory Judgment um, Act. And the court described the plaintiffs in Blades as, quote, owners of single-family residences located across the street from and in other locations near the property in question. Uh, the plaintiffs there lived in a residential four district that was zoned for single-family homes, and they were challenging the rezoning of a parcel in that district to residential six, which permitted construction of apartment complexes. And the court held that all of these plaintiffs, the ones that live right next to the parcel and the ones that live nearby, had standing to was challenge. Was that a spot zoning case? Is it, was, it, was that case because it was a spot zoning case? Um, I, I know Blades was a spot zoning case. I believe it may also have been an arbitrary and capricious zoning case. I don't, the court didn't discuss that the standard would be any different depending on the, whether it was a spot zoning or arbitrary and capricious zoning claim. Um, other cases involving zoning challenges similarly were similarly brought by plaintiffs who owned property in the area affected by the zoning ordinance. Uh, Allred versus City of Raleigh, a, a North Carolina Supreme Court case from 1971, also involved a challenge by a group of property owners. One of them lived adjacent to the parcel and the others lived nearby. In that case, the court, um, the plaintiffs lived in a quiet orderly neighborhood which was described as a high-class residential area. Um, and they argued that the presence of a high-rise apartment complex would interfere with their use and enjoyment of their properties and diminish their property values. The Supreme Court in that case raised no question about their standing to challenge the rezoning ordinance. Uh, in Village Creek, a decision by this court, a, a property owners association and 18 property owners challenged a rezoning ordinance. And this court held that they had standing based on their allegations that they were, quote, residents and or property owners of Edenton and that their rights, status, or other legal relations were affected by the ordinance. Um, and it makes sense that the property owners in the area affected by an ordinance would have standing to challenge the rezoning. Uh, first, it's consistent with the purpose of the standing requirement, which is to ensure that the plaintiff is well-situated to make the case against the challenge action. Uh, property owners that are in the area that are affected by the rezoning are the best people to make the case against the ordinance's invalidity because they're the people that are affected by the ordinance. Uh, similarly, challenges to zoning ordinances, like spot zoning and arbitrary and capricious zoning claims, like the ones at issue here, often turn on questions of whether the zoning authority properly considered the public interest and the interest of nearby property owners in the community. So you have two claims. One that it was arbitrary and capricious and two just a spot zoning. Those are That's the two right. Issues. Okay. Now, at the, <laughs> at the hearing, were you required to do more than make allegations? Were you required to come up with some proof or some kind of evidence? Because I think that's something that they argue that at a standing at the 12B hearing that you got to do more than just rely on your allegations. Do you have to have proof or, or, or some kind of evidence, affidavits or whatever? We were not required to have evidence in addition to our allegations here because the, the, the uh, defendants did not file evidence with their motion. So if they had filed evidence with their motion and challenged uh, the whether there was evidence for the standing, then we would have had to um, produce evidence and the court would have had to resolve the facts. Is the only issue standing. before us is the, the standing issue or can we also look at the 12B6? I think, I think they mentioned that in their brief. Right. We believe the only issue, only issue properly before the court is the standing issue. The trial court did not resolve the 12B, did not make a ruling under 12B6 and um, a, a ruling under 12 v 6 is a ruling on the merits. All the court did here was issue a ruling um, dismissing the complaint for lack of jurisdiction. And the, um, the appellees haven't filed a cross appeal here and they can't, this court doesn't have jurisdiction to give them more relief than they had obtained. So your argument is if, 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 if the city council or, or board of commissioners rezones property, any neighbor has a right to bring a declaratory judgment action to challenge that rezoning based on the fact that they, or based on the allegation that it was arbitrary and capricious or spot zoning. That's basically. 
any property it's legislative in because it's legislative in nature that's what you're saying any property owner who's in the area affected by the art so if that rezoning has an effect on the area where the property owner lives then yes they would have standing to challenge which is broader than if it was a quasi-judicial like if it was a special use permit being issued that's that's right. There's a broader category of plaintiffs who have standing to challenge legislative zoning decisions. For quasi-judicial decisions, there's an additional requirement that the plaintiff have suffered special damages. Okay. I have a question uh, in response to your answer that you weren't required to present evidence, but what standing is actually challenged? Aren't you required to present evidence that you actually um, have to support your specific claim that you've got standing wasn't that decision made in the uh, cherry community versus the city of charlotte well the cherry community case was decided at summary judgment um, and the, the court held in the cherry community case that the plaintiff's allegations were sufficient for standing but that at the summary judgment stage they didn't produce evidence that supported those allegations um, at the Rule 12 stage, if a defendant files affidavits and evidence with their motion to dismiss, then the plaintiff has the burden to produce evidence, and the court would re resolve the facts and whether there's evidence in support of the allegations of standing. But where a defendant does not do that, then, those, um, then the standing issues are decided based on whether the allegations, if there is evidence to support them, are sufficient for standing. And what do your clients um, claim is their individualized harm as opposed to just the community at large is going to be affected what do your clients claim is an individual harm to them and to their property uh, well our our client our position is that they don't have to show an individualized harm for standing uh, to challenge a legislative zoning decision um, but each plaintiff has alleged that their individual properties are damaged uh, that the values of each of their properties are damaged by the rezoning and for most of them also that the rezoning of the parcel will expose their properties and interfere with their use and enjoyment of their properties because of the increased noise traffic and pollution um, and the case law indicates even in the special damages context that a diminishment in value of the plaintiff's property is sufficient to show special damages allegations that the community itself will be that property values generally will be reduced is not sufficient in the special damages context but allegations that the plaintiff's property value will be diminished is sufficient there so um, our argument is that we don't have to show an individualized um, harm at, to challenge a legislative decision but even if we did that the allegations here are sufficient to show that because each plaintiff has alleged that the rezoning will diminish the value of their individual properties And I'd like to address some of the cases that the FLEs rely on um, to argue that there is a special damages requirement. And just let you know, you have about five minutes until you eat into your eight minutes. Okay, so thank you. You have about five minutes until you eat into your eight minutes. Um, some of the cases that the FLEs rely on, one case they rely on is the Davis versus Archdale, City of Archdale case. Um, that case applied a special damages requirement to a legislative zoning ordinance. And this court looked at that in Village Creek and um, looked at Supreme Court precedent that preceded the Davis case and concluded that there is not a special damages requirement to challenge a legislative zoning decision. Uh, the plaintiffs also, uh, excuse me, the appellees have also cited the Cherry Community case, which also incorrectly applied a special damages requirement to a zoning challenge. And the charity community case is not a precedential case that um, with a plurality opinion, only one judge, uh, the two judges concurred in the result only, but did not um, concur in the opinion itself. I'm just curious when this lawsuit was filed, why didn't y'all name the property owners? Would they be a necessary, I, mean, I know they intervened, which I guess is a good thing, but. I'm just kind of curious that how these you bring a declaratory mm -hmm. judgment action I mean is it normally the case that you would name the property owner um, we we named the, our, the 
Orange County and the Orange County Board of Commissioners and Terra Equity intervened. I don't, I don't know yeah, um, the answer to that. I'm just kind of curious, <laughs> kinda curious why that was the case. Okay. Um, well, if the court has no further questions, I'll um, reserve. I have a question mm -hmm. for you. <clears throat> You're, you said earlier that uh, the basis of the, of the change in status or affecting of the value of the property was uh, due to noise pollution, more traffic, things of that nature. Um, in the event that the zoning board says, okay, this is off, but we are going to approve a high-density single-family residence that don't you have all the same issues in regards to status? And I ask that question because what happens in this case may lead later to the, the rural development challenging the high-density development that's going in next door that's the same nature, except for there's more houses than, than what's in the existing development. So don't the same issues arise under the single-family high-density development as they would under this commercial development? I think some of the same issues could arise. Um, I don't know that pollution um, and, I mean, there could be traffic issues. And th th there are cases which indicate that plaintiffs, the Blades case, the Allred case, plaintiffs have challenged uh, changes in designation from one residential district to another. Uh, whether, whether there's a claim in any particular case would depend on the facts and circumstances. Uh, for a spot zoning claim, for example, it would depend on whether there's a significant change in uses. And, um, but the, the legislature has given property owners in the area that are affected by an ordinance the right to challenge that um, if their properties are in the area affected. So um, it may be that they would be able to bring a claim if the property were zoned for, that, um, for use for a high, for a high uh, density residential. Use. Thank you. Uh, well, thanks very much. Um, I'll reserve the remaining time for a vote. Thank you. Need about nine minutes. May it please the court, Matt Learberg, uh, on behalf of Appley Terra Equity, Inc. Um, I'm joined by uh, Mr. James Bryan here on behalf of the two Orange County um, Appleys. I'd like to begin with the statute, as we always should, and the statute cited by, uh, by Ms. Ligori was the declaratory judgment statute. And I believe the, the relevant language here says, any person whose rights, status, or other legal relations are affected by a municipal ordinance. So Ms. LeGuerre is absolutely right. That statute tells us who can, uh, who has standing to bring that suit. And that's exactly what the Danforth versus MPAC case says. You look at the statute, that's where you start. But the problem is this statute doesn't really uh, explain exactly what that means. It just says uh, a person whose legal relations are affected. Luckily, our Supreme Court has told us exactly what that means, and they've told us a couple times. Um, the, the standard that's most often invoked is from the Taylor versus City of Raleigh case. And importantly, that comes after, that case comes after Blades and Allred and some of the other kind of 50-year-old cases that the appellants uh, point the court to. And what the Taylor case says, it says that uh, what the declaratory judgment statute means in this context is that uh, a zoning ordinance may only be challenged by a person who has a specific personal and legal interest in the subject matter affected by the zoning ordinance and who is directly and adversely affected thereby. So when the appellants propose to this court that anybody in the general area has standing to sue, that's just not true. That's not what our Supreme Court has told us in Taylor. Um, the recent Danforth versus MPAC case actually just reaffirms exactly that. 
In uh, the MPAC case, uh, the court decided that, and actually specifically mentioned these kinds of cases, uh, in the many, many pages that are the MPAC decision, it mentions these kinds of legislative zoning challenges. And the MPAC uh, court says there is a heightened direct injury requirement in this exact setting. So it kind of carves it out and says this is a setting where there is an additional requirement in this particular setting that we have here. The court said that uh, North, Carolina, North Carolina law sometimes requires the showing of a personal interest. And um, in cases like this, a plaintiff must show direct injury. And the court goes on to explain what direct injury means. So there, there's no question what it means. The court says that to show a direct injury, a person must show that he has sustained or is immediately in danger of sustaining some direct injury as a result of its enforcement, and this is important, and not merely that he suffers in some indefinite way in common with people generally. That's paragraph 61 from our Supreme Court's decision. So the idea that there's some uncertainty as to the standard is not the case. MPAC reaffirmed the Taylor standard and said it needs to be a direct injury. What does that mean? It means you can't just say, I'm harmed in the same way as everybody else. Um, given that, we know that the, uh, we can look to the complaint and see on a 12B1 motion to see whether the plaintiffs have properly alleged standing. Now, when there's a standing challenge, as there is here, that, of course, puts the onus on the party claiming standing to prove that they have standing. They have to, right? It's standing's jurisdictional. It's a jurisdictional question. And the burden shifts to the plaintiff to say, this is why I'm allowed to be here. But in this case... The plaintiffs did nothing in response. They knew that we were challenging standing. They had every opportunity to show why they suffered a direct injury as required by MPAC, but they chose to rest on the same boilerplate, copy and paste type assertions uh, that they already had in their complaint. So they had a chance to come forward and say, no, this is why I'm different. This is why my personal's different. What do they, what do they put forward? Do they put anything forward? Nothing. The owners, a, nothing the owners? No, nothing, uh, David, nothing. There's no, there's a, it's an unverified complaint and there was no evidence met. Um, of course, you know, the civil rules allow kind of affidavits to be submitted and whatnot up to two days before the hearing, but they chose to submit nothing. And that was a strategic choice. Uh, they chose to rest on the allegations in the complaint. And if the court were to look at those allegations, it's just paragraph after paragraph of copy and paste. It's the same language, uh, just crafted by the lawyers and put in every single paragraph for every parcel. That, almost by definition, is a generalized grievance, the exact thing that the courts are trying to avoid and that our Supreme Court told us uh, we're trying to avoid in the standing context. Well, tell me that I think one property owner has land adjacent to this 12-acre tract. Why wouldn't that be, why wouldn't that person have more, they'd be different than the general public because their, their property's right next door? They could be. And uh, our Supreme Court told us in Mangum and just about 10 years ago uh, that, yes, Proximity is a factor to be considered, but Mangum said it is not sufficient. So you can't just say, I'm close. That's not enough. Cherry versus Wisner, a Chief Judge Stroud decision from 2016, says the same thing. Um, it's a factor, but it's not enough. Now, take, for example, if, um, you know, if a property were next to, had a, a gorgeous view of the waterfront, and then there was a proposal to put a 10-story building, and it blocked just that one parcel of view. And they put in evidence, and they said, here's our evidence for our appraiser. The appraiser says our, the property value is going to cut in half. That's evidence. That person could come forward and perhaps say evidence and say, you know, the person to my left and the person to my right, their view is unaffected. They, their property value is the same. This is something specific to me. But there's nothing like that in this record. That's the, the central failing from the plaintiffs. And even if uh, this court were to find that evidence weren't required, at the very least, facts are required. And our courts have said that, that you can't just have these boilerplate allegations. They have to be supported, right? These are kind of conclusory allegations that we don't tolerate in really any context, but certainly not in this context to just say my property value and pollution and environmental and traffic. That's not enough. You would have to say very specifically, you know, they're going to drive through my property. They're going to install a sewer line across my property. Whatever it is that's specific and direct and affects just you, just your parcel, and not every parcel kind of around to varying extents. 
So yes, I agree with Ms. Ligori that the statute's where we start, and I agree that MPAC has something to say about this, but I think it just reaffirms uh, the Supreme Court test that we've used uh, for, for decades. So, you know, the idea that any neighbor can sue, I just think is, is rejected by the case law. And I'd also like to talk about the um, kind of the development of, of the law on this because Ms. Sigori in her brief and in argument today raises the Village Creek case. Um, the Taylor standard from the Supreme Court, of course, controls. And this court has no ability to upset that or change that rule, right? That is the rule. When the Supreme Court announces it, we're all stuck with it. In Davis, this court looked at that, looked at Taylor and said, I know what this means. This means you need to show a direct harm. You need to show how you're different from everybody else in the community. Um, you need to show special damages. Several years later in Village Creek, this court said Davis was wrongly decided. But of course, under INRI civil penalty, you know, this court doesn't have that ability. One panel can't overrule another panel because it disagrees with it. And when a later court like this um, is charged with looking back and trying to decide what to do, if these lines are truly conflicting, this court's required to look at the, the earlier line uh, because of in civil penalty. That's the state versus Alonzo case that requires that. Uh, Judge Carpenter, you raised the question of uh, whether the plaintiffs would ultimately face kind of a similar ills if they were to even win this case, what would happen in the future? And I think that raises an important point, which is to look at kind of the reality of where we are in this particular district. So what's before the court now is, uh, it's an excerpt from the plaintiff's complaint. This is on record page 11. And just to orient the court, this red parcel is one of the three parcels that's in question in this case uh, to be rezoned. This kind of pinkish, uh, light pinkish parcel here and here are already zoned MPD-CZ. Uh, so these are the three parcels where the project is going to be placed. That MPD-CZ designation is uh, an economic development area, and it's been designated that way by the county for uh, since 1981 at least, and the record shows it goes at least that far back. So for 40 years, anybody buying property around this area knew, not just by implication because it's um, next to I-40 and I-85, one of the major interchanges we have in the state, but also because the public record showed that the plan for Orange County was to concentrate development right here in economic development zones like this. It was rezoned to MPDCZ in 2018, that went by without a challenge. That settled, it settled this many years later. And even in um, about just a couple weeks before the ordinance was passed here, the fu future land use map, sometimes called the, the FLUM, which is a lovely acronym, uh, that was amended even to show, to change that even this parcel, parcel three, would be used for economic development in the future. So, you know, I, I understand that in you know, some spot zoning cases, you could have a legislature or a, uh, a board reach in and change something that surprises everybody because it's right in the middle of a farm, right? That's the classic spot zoning. But that's not this. This land is not surrounded by all rural. It's got uh, MPDCZ right above it. All the other purple is commercial type district. So as- Is that issue before us, whether or not that they've actually, I mean, whether this is spot zoning or not? But if they, if they allege spot zoning, do they have standing to challenge it? Is just the standing, <laughs> what's before us? Just the standing issue? Or do we evaluate whether or not this really is spot zoning? Is well, well Judge Dillon, the, the standing issue is the principal issue on appeal, no question. The, this court does, of course, have jurisdiction to look at the other issue. Um, an appellee is welcome to raise any alternative basis in law to support the judgment below. Have they made an allegation? They've made an allegation that this is spot zoning, haven't they? Yes. And if they make that allegation and they're the next door neighbor, do they, why, does, why isn't that enough to say at least to survive a 12B whatever on the standing issue? If you, if you allege this, this property is spot, zoning, is, is, is spot zoning and we're the next door neighbor and we're challenging it, well, there's why, no why, would, why would that not survive at least the, 
why, why would that lease survive the, the 12B1? Well, Your Honor, there's no case that says that being adjacent is sufficient. Instead, the cases, including Mangum, say being adjacent is not sufficient. There has to be some showing beyond just I'm a nearby neighbor. There has to be something more. Um, and just saying you're nearby is not enough. There has to be some evidence. There has to be a recitation of facts in the complaint explaining why you in particular are being harmed by this spot, this alleged spot zone. Um, but this court can look at the 12B6 issue if it wants to. You know, as, as this, Judge Dillon, you noted in a concurrence in a, a case called State versus Hester from a few years back that there's kind of a difference between arguments that an appellee preserves below and arguments that an appellee does not preserve below. Certainly any argument preserved below that was argued below, this court can consider as an alternative basis to affirm. But this court doesn't need to reach it. You don't need to reach the 12B6 issue on spot zoning and arbitrary and capricious. And the evidence in the record shows in the complaint attaches enough evidence to show that, you know, going to summary judgment would be a waste of time because this doesn't meet the characteristics for spot zoning or for arbitrary and capricious conduct. And we wanted to include it in the brief, uh, in the brief, in case the court wanted to look at it, since the court does have jurisdiction to consider it, should it so choose. I want to circle back to the Taylor test briefly. Uh, the Taylor test does include several different elements. It, it requires a personal interest, a legal interest, uh, and direct effects that are adverse. All of those things need to be properly alleged and supported by facts. Here, um, the, the plaintiffs fail on several of those fronts. Direct effects, of course, is what we've been discussing for the most part, where kind of alleging increased traffic in general or decreased property values in general, that's not a direct effect distinct from the rest of the community. But there's also the question of a legal right. So by all means, there are cases where plaintiffs have standing in these contexts, right? Uh, you know, for example, if a, a sewer line is going to be run across your property, that's a, it's personal to you. It's not uh, kind of related to any other parcel. It's a real legal right that you have because you have the right to enjoy your property without a sewer line on it. It's direct to you and it's adverse. That's the classic example of kind of checking all of the boxes under Taylor. Uh, but here, the fact, the mere fact that these kind of allegations are copied and pasted, it shows they're not personal. There's no allegation really that this is a legal interest, that there's a right in question, as Judge Dillon asked earlier. Um, and it's not direct. Now, they may feel like it's adverse. They may not want it there. By all means, they may not want it there. But that by itself is not enough. I want to also touch on this distinction between legislative and quasi-judicial. It's an important distinction. Um, the stat there is a statute, right, 160D, the new 160D 1402, uh, subsection C, spells out this is who has standing for to challenge a quasi-judicial decision. There's no such statute for, um, in this context, in kind of challenging a legislative decision. The legislature has modified the land use statutes a couple times, one about 13 years ago, and then again over the last couple years in kind of crafting 160D. But repeatedly, the legislature has, has deemed not, uh, they, they have not set forth a statute that says, we're going to give a cause of action, a specific cause of action to this group of people. And under MPAC, if the General Assembly wants to do that, that'd be the end of the story. They just pick up the pen and say, Neighbors have standing to challenge legislative decisions. They could do it tomorrow. Uh, but they haven't. They've repeatedly not done that. And so the law remains as it always has been, uh, and as developed by not just the declaratory judgment statute, but also the case law interpreting it as to what the standards are before a plaintiff can claim standing. And to be clear, the, the kind of distinction between these two it, is critical. In a legislative context, as Ms. Lagori noted, the public interest controls. That is an elected body. Those are elected officials. Their job is to uh, schedule day after day of hearing, as they did here, welcome the citizens to come and make points, um, you know, argue for or against the project. And in this case, because it's conditional zoning, the legislature holds all of the cards, right? The board holds all of the cards. And the record shows that there was kind of an extraction of concession after concession. The project was modified. Can you put trees here? Can you change the elevation here? Can you lower the height of these buildings? That's how it's supposed to work. 
it's supposed to work for these political entities, right, on the board to extract as much as they can to satisfy the public interest while also satisfying the other half of the public interest, which is, you know, as noted in their long-term plan, developing a better tax base. So it's not just homes, developing industry, jobs, $50 million a year in, in salaries for jobs, right? That's part of what the board is trying to do too, is balance all of these things. That is a messy, complicated political process. And there's a good reason why we open up those legislative decisions to the public. Everybody can come and speak. But we close it afterwards. And when that decision is made, to come to the courts and ask this court, and to be clear, to come and ask this court to throw out a legislative determination by the county, that's what's being asked, to issue an injunction against a legislative determination. Uh, that should be a narrow group of people who can do that. And it should be people who have a real legal interest, who can say, this is specifically how I'm harmed by it. If all of these plaintiffs have standing, then everybody has standing. And these legislative decisions are just going to be revisited by the courts over and over and over. That is not how the system is designed, because time matters. And with every kind of tick of the clock, as uh, time goes on, these kinds of projects become unfeasible. And opening the door to plaintiffs to kind of drag all of these into court just delays the ability of, uh, of landowners to develop their property as they see fit and possibly even kind of scuttle a project. That even happened here. There was a project a few years ago uh, on this exact parcel that didn't come to fruition. So kind of circling back to Judge Carpenter's question, this is already zoned for development. It's going to happen eventually. And the neighbors can kind of only delay things. That's why there are strict standing requirements. So I'll pause there and see if there are any questions from the court. All right, if there are no further questions, I will lower the podium and sit back down. Thank, Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. We'll hear from the appellant. You have about nine minutes. Thank you, Your Honors. Um, I'd like to start just by briefly address it, addressing the question of this court's jurisdiction. Um, Mr. Lehrberg argued that, it, that the court can affirm on any basis um, that's supported by the record. Um, but what, what the appellees are asking with the 12v6 argument is not to affirm the judgment of the trial court. They're asking for a change in that judgment. So the trial court's judgment was a ruling under 12v1 uh, for lack of standing, which is not a, a ruling on the merits. And they're asking um, for a ruling under 12b-6, which would be a ruling on the merits and would have res judicata effect. And this court does not have jurisdiction to expand the nature of the judgment without a cross appeal. Um, to address the issues about the Dan Forrest case and the Taylor case, it's important to actually take a look at what each of those cases say about standing. Um, the Dan Forrest case states that in cases seeking injunction relief, including cases brought under the Declaratory Judgment Act, a plaintiff has to show direct injury to have standing. The court says that direct injury required in this context could be, but is not necessarily limited to, to a deprivation of a constitutionally guaranteed personal right or an invasion of his property rights. Dan Forrest noted that North Carolina's requirement is not as strict as the federal cases that the North Carolina courts had been applying in the past. And it noted that the, the purpose for this requirement is to ensure that the plaintiff um, is properly situated to bring the case, to ensure that the plaintiff's going to be affected by the statute or by the zoning ordinance that's being challenged. Um, and he, it does say that they will not suffer some indefinite, in some indefinite way in common with the people generally. But a nearby property owner suffers, does not suffer in the common way with the people generally. A nearby property owner suffers because they live and own property right near a property that's being rezoned. That's different from someone who lives across town who wouldn't have standing because they don't live in the area that's affected by the zoning ordinance. And the Taylor case makes this clear. Taylor, um, Taylor did not reach a holding on standing, but it did look at the law on standing. And it compared the facts of Taylor to the facts of the Blades case and the Allred case. And the Taylor court noted, quote, that in Allred and Blades, 
Zoning ordinances were successfully challenged. The action was instituted by a large number of nearby property owners. Uh, and the Taylor court noted that the plaintiffs in the Taylor case were not nearby property owners. There was no plaintiff in that case that lived closer than a half mile away from the property. Um, and the zoning in that case left a, a buffer zone in between the area whose rezoning they were challenging and the area where all of the plaintiffs lived. The court also noted in Taylor that the, the rezoning didn't change the uses of the property. And in that case, the plaintiffs were really concerned with, with an easement issue, which, um, which could have happened whether there was a rezoning or not. So the Taylor case, again, didn't reach a holding on standing, but it did address standing. And even Taylor indicated that the, standing, that the standard um, for standing to challenge a legislative zoning ordinance is met um, by nearby property owners who live in the area affected by the zoning ordinance. Uh, and Mr. Learberg uh, cited the Magnum case several times. It's important to note that the Magnum case is a quasi-judicial case. That did not apply the standard for standing in a, to challenge a legislative zoning decision. But even in that case, where it applied the special damages requirement, if the court there found that standing, the special damages requirements was satisfied, where the property owners showed that they would be, their properties would be exposed to increased noise, traffic, and pollution, and that this would affect the values of each of their properties. And that's what we've alleged in this case. Um, so, you can see you, you didn't put forth any evidence, but you, you were saying that you're not, you weren't required to. You could rest on your allegations. That's what, that's what you said. That's right. At the Rule 12 stage, where, there has, where the defendant doesn't file evidence, with their motion to dismiss, where they're not challenging that evidence exists, where they're challenging whether the allegations are sufficient to support standing. The plaintiff does not have to produce evidence um, in, uh, to support its allegations. At that point, the court assume, presumes that the, views the allegations in the light most favorable to the plaintiff and presumes that those allegations are true. And that's set forth in the Noose River case, um, which is a North Carolina a, a Court of Appeals case. And it's also discussed in the federal cases that are cited in the appellee's brief. Um, and the, the appellees are arguing here that there's no standing if everybody is damaged, essentially. So under their theory, there would be no one who can challenge a, a zoning ordinance. If, if, every, if there's more than one person that's damaged under their theory, then nobody gets to challenge the ordinance. And that's not what the cases say, and that, that's not what the law should be. It shouldn't be that as long as you damage everybody's property that no one gets to challenge uh, the decision. What the cases say is that if, if the plaintiff shows that they're um, that they're well for for a standing for, to challenge a legislative decision that they're in the area affected by the ordinance that that's sufficient that's clear under the Blades case that's the standard that this court applied in um, the Village Creek case it's the standard that this court uh, that the Supreme Court relied on in the Taylor case as well um, but even for special damages if a plaintiff shows that their property is is damaged that the the value of their property is diminished by the, the challenged action, and if their use and enjoyment of their property is damaged, then that's sufficient. You don't have to show that you're the only one that's damaged. If, you're, if your property values and if your use and, enjoy, and enjoyment is diminished, that's sufficient, even for special damages. Um, and just taking a look at, at the statutes at issue, um, The legislature in Section 1401 did not limit the category of persons who have standing. What the legislature said in Section 1401 is that to they, they created a right of action to challenge a legislative zoning ordinance and said anyone who has standing under the declaratory judgment action may challenge a legislative zoning ordinance. 
And in Section 1402, the legislature decided to limit the class of persons who had standing. If the legislature wanted to limit the class of persons who had standing to challenge legislative zoning ordinances, they could and would have done so in Section 1401, but they did not. And so the law, the background law, the case law from the North Carolina Supreme Court and from this court, which holds that property owners who live in the area that's affected by the ordinance have standing to challenge that ordinance. Uh, if there are no further questions from the court, uh, we'd ask the court to reverse the trial court's order. Thank you for your Thank argument. You. We'll take it under advisement. That's the only case for today. We're going to have a swearing in in a few minutes, so we'll um, we'll just sit. We're just going to rest for a little bit and allow y'all to collect, gather your stuff, and then we'll, we'll have a have a swearing in. So. Thank you, counsel.